Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Research has shown and continues to show that shame and addiction go hand in hand. In this podcast, we hear from two experienced counselors on the topics of treating clients with addiction and how addressing shame is foundational to recovery. Our guests today are Mars Clinical Director Patrice Alexander and also an experienced Atlanta-based therapist who works in private practice, Alice Wellens. We start off hearing from Alice about why she found working with people who have addictions to be particularly fulfilling. Most people, if they get a job in the field of addiction, they either run for the hills <laughs> or it really speaks to them. And it speaks to something in them that resonates with the work that they are starting to be drawn to and want to do. And that's really what happened with me is to be able to be with people who were going through something so powerful and touched every area of their life and be a part of trying to find healing, stabilization, recovery was just really, really moving. The thing I think that really kept me was the ability to have those um, really broad, rich, deep discussions that recovery allows you to have. You can talk about spirituality, you talk about love, you talk about what we're going to talk about today, you know, shame. Um, you can talk about these really meaningful, deep things that traditional psychodynamic psychotherapy really doesn't show you the way to. And so I think, I think that's what kept me in is, is the ability to really talk and hear about people's thoughts and lives in this incredibly moving way. And for me, um, landing in addiction treatment was more of a serendipitous finding. Like I wasn't, I didn't intend or seek out, you know, to um, work in addiction. And it was very eye-opening for me um, because I didn't really know or understand like addiction. Um, so I had my own, I guess, naive thoughts about like people that use drugs and why they did it. Um, and it was nothing like what I thought. I definitely would agree with Alice. Like it really touched on like everything that I wanted to do in terms of helping people um, deal with like people who've been abused, um, you know, in their childhood or adolescence or at any point like in their lives um, that were dealing with depression, anxiety, um, a whole the gamut of like mental health. It was like all right there at that one little center with people that also had um, substance use disorders, like they were dealing with addiction. So it was just like, wow, like this is kind of like a one-stop shop. It was pretty overwhelming. Um, and needless to say, I think I got like in way over my head. Um, what was overwhelming about it for you? I think the stories, like um, just the raw intensity of the emotions when someone is um, not just withdrawing from, you know, the, the substances, but actually um, facing, you know, the issues that they were using drugs and alcohol to escape from. So it was, it's just, that's the only thing I can say, because I have worked um, in other settings as well. Um, that dealt with just mental health. And I did end up working with, you know, adolescents as well um, and doing some family work. Um, but working with someone who's getting in recovery, 
just those early stages of them getting in recovery when they start to really um, face, you know, their issues. And I like what Alice said also, like rediscover like who they are, like the, the truth about themselves and um, start to heal from like shame, especially, um, and get to a place of acceptance that they are, you know, like worthy of having um, like a great life. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm interested to hear from both of you as uh, clinicians in this field day in and day out. What kind of, what's that like for you to carry all those stories and to take that in? I mean, how is that for you as, as the person kind of bearing witness to that? That's a really, really great question. And I think that's part of the journey of anybody who works in this field that's part of their work is to understand boundaries um and we can be you know physical boundaries emotional boundaries energetic boundaries um boundaries around if there's something going on in your own life what needs to shift around boundaries in your work life so boundaries can change over time but if you're really really present in this work and you really show up, then then you're going to take in other people's suffering. And everybody's different as to how they take it in and what will really um, land on them harder or deeper. And so we we are really called to do our own work, whether that's your own psychotherapy, your own recovery, your own um, yoga, meditation, exercise out in nature, your own spirituality journey, to learn how we can sit in true presence with another person. And I like to say when I'm talking to my students to, that there's this art form that we find around being everywhere and nowhere at the same time. We're everywhere because we care about these people sitting in front of us. The you know, Sharon Salzberg, who's a uh, teacher and meditator, talks about, somebody asked her, what do you think it is that's the secret of what heals in clinical settings? And she said, it's the love in the room. And it very much is the love in the room. So how do you, how do you let that be there and have boundaries? And um, I think the real answer to that is we have to know ourselves and we have to do our own work. And then that gives us this freedom to really, really be there. You know, for me, it looks like everything from how I schedule clients um, to how many people I see, what kinds of cases I'm taking. Um, if there's really something going on for me, then I might limit certain kinds of cases. If I have a lot of energy and expanse at a period of time, I'll take on different kinds of cases how many you see in a row, how many days you work, what you're doing in your time off. So there's those logistical things. There's also you, you, you taking in for yourself, where is all that going in, in me, in my energy self? And what, what am I doing about moving that, you know, along back into the universe? Because we can't take all that with us. Mm -hmm. Um, but we need to be able to stay present to what's happening. So it's it's a really wonderful, deep, rich conversation in the field. It's like you got to work on multiple levels at the same time mm -hmm. of being there emotionally, but then trying to understand 
intellectually what's going on and what's like it's it's a lot goes into it yeah <laughs> it's not an easy job um yeah. and, t- and timing is important in that because there uh-huh. are multiple levels happening you know there's a psychoeducational level there's containment there's mm-hmm. um boundaries there's logistics with some clients you know mm-hmm. a very much a logistical process that's happening of are you doing this are you doing that and a lot of things you kind of have to put in your back pocket and save for later down the road when you know that those things can then there's more resources for clients to be able to manage certain topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. And, and I think initially <laughs> I thought I was the fixer, like they were yeah. coming yeah. to me for help. And so it was my job to like fix people. Um, and so then trying to like use all my energy to figure out like what's the solution here? Mm-hmm. Like I'm supposed to be the expert. And then just learning like really like that's not what I'm here for. Like, you know, they just need a safe place, you know, um, to like process and to like learn and grow. And I'm there to facilitate and be part of that journey um, and to like give them what they need at that moment. And I don't have to solve everything in that one session. That's impossible. So I think that was the other part of Mm -hmm. it, too, is I had my own unrealistic expectations about like what my role was, you know, in the process. So that I think all that it's kind of a good segue into talking about shame because that's such a powerful, heavy emotion that people bring into recovery. And so I guess I'd just like to hear some of your opening thoughts and we can get into it deeper about how you see shame playing a role in addiction and recovery. You want to go first? Yeah. Sure. Um, I think shame does play a role and not a positive one. Um, in the beginning, I think it's a, a barrier. It's like this, um, you know, belief that a person has um, that they are not, you know, worthy, they're not good enough, like whatever, I'm not, fill in the blank. Um, that just, and we all struggle with self-doubt and fear, um, but it's shame is that just non-stop like negative self-talk and oftentimes it's false beliefs it's um messages that were placed you know in our heads by someone else um and we carry that around with us and some of us have been doing that for like a really long time and it's gets in the way of recovery um if you're not able to like rewrite those messages Um, and connect the dots between like when you hear those messages, like what do you do? So, you know, that thought or that belief, you know, can trigger the, of course, the emotion of shame. Um, And then no one likes to feel that or like sit in that. And if you do for too long, then oftentimes you're going to, you know, act either impulsively or in a way that's not going to be in your own best interest because the message that you're telling yourself is you're not, you know, capable or worthy of anything better anyway or anything good happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then we go out and we act, you know, in self-defeating ways. Um, So if that's not... Um, addressed and if you don't gain that awareness um, and learn tools to like overwrite those messages um, then I don't see how you can like embrace recovery 
um, because it's a spiritual process and healing from shame is a spiritual process. Um, cause when you're carrying shame, it's like, you're saying, I know better than God or my creator, um, that I'm a mistake or that I'm not worthy or good enough. Um, like I said, I'm not filling the blank. Um, and that's not our truth. That's not our, you know, like role, like, mm-hmm. you know, to, um, to do that. That's interesting because that, that's, I'd never really thought of it, of it that way, but that, and that's such a common phrase in the AA literature too, about playing God, you know, and that, that shame is a way of playing God that like, no, you're wrong. I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, shame is really the cornerstone topic um, and work of addiction and recovery. So guilt is, I did something wrong. Shame is, there's something wrong with me. And guilt can be a helpful motivator to help us look at our behaviors and help us grow. But shame is intrinsic and pervasive, is often intergenerational. Mm -hmm. Um, And shame is the number one issue from everything in recovery, from research dollars to somebody actually getting clean and sober. So we really have to address shame just ongoing. And the field of addiction and recovery does a tremendous job at talking about it from all these different facets and all these different ways like Patrice just did around, you know, using how the big book talks about you can't play God. And it's sort of that when you hear that, like that snaps you into place somehow. And the the field does a wonderful job at having all these ways that kind of help you combat shame. Um, but shame is the, the most dangerous feature of shame to me is that it's an isolating force. So shame makes you believe there's something wrong with you. I've, I've heard people talk about, they actually feel toxic. They actually feel radioactive. They feel like people can look at them and see what a toxic person they are. That's, I mean, to walk around with that belief about yourself is, is devastating. So when you are experiencing that, you want to isolate from others, from being successful professionally, from relationships, from your family, from your community, from your higher power, from anything that is available to help connect you back to everything from education to recovery to, to love. So how we can reach in, you know, and try to, to try to touch people there to help them move from, you know, shame to a compassionate sense of who they really are. And that, I think that really goes back to what we were just talking about here is when people get to Mar or when people get to a, to a counseling office, to create a space, even if it's just a moment on a phone on a crisis line, for them to just feel seen and heard and cared for, that can create a spark inside that dark, dark place of shame. And it can just begin a light to help them start to move forward. And that's a wonderful feature of recovery communities, of um, 12-step program, 
is that there's this place that people go where there is fellowship, where there is connection, um, and it just starts to to lessen that shame and create a space for them to feel lighter and more free. And and like Patrice was saying, to start to um, rewrite those messages about mm. who they really are. And we need other people to mm-hmm. do that in the beginning because they're just, they can't do that themselves. And oftentimes it's like you were saying, Patrice, it's been handed down to them intergenerationally. They're carrying messages and energy that is, that is not even theirs. The, I want to hear more about this intergenerational thing. Like, how does that work? If we also look at it through the lens of <clears throat> like attachment theory and the uh, addiction model, then say you have parents who are addicts, alcoholics, one or both might be an addict and alcoholic, or there was a home where there was abuse or there was a home where there was mental illness. Then, then children born into those families, they don't get some very, very important needs met. Um, it could be the very beginning of their birth needs around survival. They didn't get appropriate nutrition. They didn't get appropriate um, connection. They didn't get food, clothing, shelter, the basic things that um, infants need to survive. And that... That changes the game. I mean, you know, actually prenatal changes the game. Um, But we'll start with the baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And actually education and resources change the game. But Mm -hmm. um, so if if an infant starts attuning to its environment 45 minutes after, after birth, so an infant starts trying to get its shelter and food needs met, from a, from a very primitive part of their brain, 45 minutes after birth. And from that moment on, we are trying to get our needs met in our family first and then from the world. Mm-hmm. And if we learn ways to get our needs met that aren't helpful, that aren't constructive, that aren't resourceful, then we just take those on into the world and we then develop relationships like that and then we raise our raise the next generation like that. But what where where it really happens is children are egocentric. So they think that everything that's happening in their environment is about them. And so if something's going on with mom and dad, or mom and mom, or dad and dad, or grandmom, or whoever it is that are their primary caretakers, then they think it's about them. If mom and dad didn't come home, they think it's because there's something wrong with me. They don't care enough about me. If mom and dad fight or dad and dad or grandma and whoever it is, um, then it's because I'm not worthy of being taken care of. That's the message that gets downloaded into them. And they also, um, caretakers, you know, often forget that one of the main responsibilities is to tell a child who they are to show the light of who you are. I see you. You're funny. You're smart. You're very kind. You know, you ask the best questions. Caretakers' jobs are to light up the places in the child as to who they are so that person, that little person can go into the world and be that and feel safe and secure 
in themselves and in their interpersonal relationships. So if they don't have that, then they can't create that. And if they can't create that, then they don't pass that down to the next generation. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a primary way that that happens, mm-hmm. really. Um, and that's what you see so much with people in recovery is, like we were talking about earlier around holding space, is just having somebody sit in front of another person and start to have those places lit up that they never have before. I see you. I hear you. You matter to me. I mean, that's really what we're doing on a, on a basic level because mm. they never got that before for, for whatever reason or didn't get enough mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, and that works on the works on the person even if they're not consciously realizing it i imagine it also shapes their brain Mm -hmm. it shapes you know the functioning of their biological bodies they're all they're able to track now that trauma um changes our genetic um presentation and that is passed down so our ability to genetically uh synthesize stress and deal with it appropriately is passed down from generation to mm. generation. It's really, it's really all encompassing. Yeah. And even if you um, had early life experiences where you did get those messages and you did feel safe and secure, I mean, there are like attachment injuries that can happen in life. And that's why I said it does, it's not always like in the home or the parents or, yeah. you know, grandparents. It could be, you know, um, other experiences that happen outside of the home. Um, where, you know, something traumatic happened, you know, um, like abuse or just received um, messages that, you know, caused you to to experience like some shame that there was something wrong with you. Um, It's hard to like overwrite that, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you are getting the positive somehow, it's like, well, if that were true, then why did this happen? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that um, it can happen, you know, at, at any at any age, trauma especially is like she said, like the research that's coming out now about how trauma changes the brain. Um, it's serious. It's like really um, important that people know and understand um, that you need to ex- go to therapy so mm-hmm. that you can experience those um, what's called corrective emotional experiences to help your brain like mm-hmm. repair from that. And I'm really glad you reiterated the outside of the home piece because. A lot of times people will say, but I had a great family and yeah. everything was, mm-hmm. you know, really nice. And, and, it, and it was. There can be something that happened, small, medium or large, somewhere along the way that planted that seed, like you were saying, yeah. at just the right time, at just the right developmental moment, you know, just that moment. And it just it just blossomed from there Mm -hmm. and it created this shame of something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. Um, and that can really take off and then cause people, you know, one of the things you hear all the time is people, um, use alcohol and drugs because they want to medicate themselves from feeling something that feels unbearable. And, a lot of times it, it's these types of things that they might not have even known. They might not have made a, a direct connection to. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up 
about the alcohol and drugs because that was going to be my next question. Like, wh- how does that start to fit into this? Once somebody gets clean and sober, which in and of itself is just a miracle because that's mm. quite a, quite a moment in life. And they are now starting to work on the emotional issues, the underlying issues. Then all those years that have that they've never dealt appropriately with their shame, they've been dealing with it through numbing it, um, compartmentalizing it, justifying, rationalizing, blaming all the things. Um, then it's there. And so the other component of that is, you know, we say this all the time in the field, you, you really have the developmental resources available to you that were going on about the time you started using. So if you started using as a teenager, then early in recovery, that, that's kind of where your mentality is. That's kind of where your emotional coping resources are. So you have somebody who might be in their 20s, 30s, 40s or older they're getting clean and sober. They're starting to come into psychotherapy now and, and look at their look at their story, but they don't have the the coping skills to deal with this. And so it's really, you know, pacing is very important and developing coping skills is important to hold the container that is going to let psychotherapy work. And that's another early therapy mistake is when young therapists, oftentimes a client comes in and they start telling this story and they're emoting and you're like, I'm, I'm right there in it. We're right there in it. This is great. I remember feeling that way many times. I mean, this is therapy <laughs> and, and the client leaves and they relapse or or you know or they struggle or they go into a de- their depression kicks back because they have no coping skills mm-hmm. to manage that. And so it's a very paradoxical approach. We want to we want to create the coping skills first or simultaneously ish um, to help them ho- have a place to hold all these memories and feelings that are coming up. Yeah. And that's that's tough. <laughs> and that's that's one of the reasons you see relapses. Mm-hmm. It's because it's two steps forward, one step back sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, hard. It is. And and they're feeling it in their body too. Mm-hmm. And they that's another element that they have really not been in touch with during the course of their um, disease is how their body feels. So helping them to sort of get back in their body and feel that learning cues of mm-hmm. when they're feeling emotional um, reactions and responses, kind of what to do with it. Um, it's 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 that's the meat. Yeah, of right. the work. Mm-hmm. I, I like how you put that too. It's like you don't want to get there's as stuff comes up, you need to develop the skills to like mm-hmm. maybe everything coming up all at once might not be right <laughs> the most uh, helpful in terms of maintaining sobriety. Yeah, emotional flooding. Yeah, and um, and the the other thing is resisting that impulse because clients they want to get it off their chest. Yeah. They kind of feel like if I get it off my chest, mm-hmm. it'll it'll be gone. And, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh-huh. It's an ultra race, not a marathon. And so pacing is really important and, yeah. and holding that safe space and holding that container again, back to our initial conversation, 
um, constant object, you know, that we are here and the work is here and, you know, we, we not, this is a safe place to, to start to unpack this. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the um, amazing contributions of DBT to our field is they, that treatment course gives clients so many resources to use that's very much helpful in this work. Mm-hmm. DBT and I think EFT, emotionally yeah. focused um, therapy, um, definitely, because that deals with the attachment, attachment. that mm-hmm. um, we, yeah, we talked about earlier. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about this because we at, here at MAR, we do gender separate, gender specific treatment. So we have a women's center and a men's center. And how have, what have you two uh, noticed in terms of how shame shows up differently for men versus women? And if you could just say a few things about that. I think what I've seen here at Mars, um, the women come in um, with more, um, the shame is just like outwardly, like, you know, um, Present. You don't have to dig too like deep really for not, Right, yeah. yeah. It's just, and I think with men, um, it's hidden behind anger, um, which is really anger is a secondary emotion. But I think that the shame, um, it's just harder. Like it's not as outwardly, you know, visible. Um, but once you get to know the client, and it's, I don't want to stereotype it that way either, um, because I don't know if it's necessarily like linked to gender or if it's more about um, expressiveness, mm-hmm. you know, because it can be, you know, men can be just as emotionally expressive as, as women. So I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, say that. I just want to say like um, from my experience of like what I've seen here, and it's probably because we are gender separate. Um, so when I'm at the women's center, it's all women at the men's center, Mm -hmm. it's all, you know, guys. Um, but that's just from my experience. I don't think this is directly what you're asking, but it's Mm -hmm. what came to my mind is oftentimes what I see is, and again, this is a big generalization Mm -hmm. is, um, men often come in when the consequences start reaching a critical point around their professional financial life. Um, That seems to be so much of where their identity gets focused oftentimes. Women tend, I I tend to see women coming in more when the consequences are relational and childcare and uh, maybe even some health. And so to me, the, the reason I think about that or even look for that is in addiction in particular, you, you know, it's, un, I, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but you really have to, you really have to know where their vulnerable spots are because that's where you're going to get the most um, leverage in helping know these are the things that are important to the client. And so these are the things I can help them find ways to hold and protect and, and regain or recover and use as motivation to get them back into their life that they want. I don't think that's exactly what you were asking, but that's what I was thinking about gender in, in particular. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. If you had something you wanted to pass on to the listeners about shame in particular, what would it be? We start with you, Patrice. Um, something to pass on to the listeners in particular. Um, I think if you're dealing with shame... Um, to really, um, you're worth it. 
um, to like make that investment in yourself, um, get in recovery, get with a therapist, um, that your thoughts, like those messages that you hear that you've been carrying around for like a long time, aren't really the best judge of character. <laughs> you know, that's what I'll say. Um, is that, yeah, just you, you're worth it. You, you deserve it. Um, you are enough and that's, that you're worth it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's great. What a question, Matt. Well, um, I think the, I think if, if, there's just one area to talk about that. I, I often tell people, you have, you, you have never given up on yourself. You are still here. You are still showing up for yourself. And that part of you that has never given up is the part of you that has not been completely taken over by shame. And that's the part that we're going to keep talking to. Because so often we get stuck in talking to the shame. And if we can just keep talking to that part that never gave up and just keep bringing that part in and letting it have more space. And then there are a million conversations after that. But that, mm-hmm. that's the, I think that's the thing that I often try to engage with in the room. Wait, and what do you mean by talking to the shame? Like, what does that look like? <clears throat> Oftentimes, because shame is shame is really um, tricky, yeah. and mm-hmm. so it'll it'll get us it'll get us defocused on it. I'm so bad. I can't do anything right. It's never going to work out. What's wrong with me? And you can quickly find yourself trying to argue that point, and the shame is thrilled when that happens because mm-hmm. it's just going to keep pulling in deeper and deeper and deeper and you're going to keep trying to do it. Meanwhile, we're not talking about any of these other helpful topics, you know, which is the skills you do have, the places that are helpful, the um, the truth of, you know, the, the miraculous nature of your being, mm-hmm. um, the light that's inside you because shame is just going to defocus us and take us down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, too, because one of the things when I was working with families, I would often say, like, you know, when you hear your loved ones say, like, I'm such a failure, you know, I'm, you know, um, you guys would be better off if I weren't here anymore, like all that, like um, that instinct is to immediately argue with the shame like no, no you're not <laughs> you know you're such a great person like we love you like you, you know you, you try to talk mm-hmm. them out of it um and that's not like yeah the shame like loves that it almost like feeds on that it almost looks for more evidence to prove you wrong mm-hmm. Right. And you're telling me that I am, you know, loved and lovable and good enough. But I have all this evidence that the shame is going to latch on to to like prove you wrong. You're just saying that because you're my mom, Mm -hmm. you you know. Yeah. It gets discounted. Um, And I think, you know, to be able to not react, you know, to that and argue with the shame um, definitely is a skill. And, you know, um, I always, you know, encourage um, 
family members, like I said, when you're hearing someone talk that way, um, to use I messages instead of you messages. Like, don't start saying, no, you're this or, you know, arguing with the shame, Mm -hmm. but to say, you know, it hurts me to hear you say that. You know, I don't see you that way. You know, I think maybe you should go and talk to someone about that Mm -hmm. Um, because then that says, I see you, I hear you. Um, and I have my own experience when I hear that, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm not going to argue with you or try to take that away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's way more validating because mm-hmm. it's real. It is. It is mm-hmm. real. Um, and sometimes as painful as it is, it's can also be comfortable for yeah. people because mm-hmm. it's what's familiar. Right. Um, so it's like, you're trying to take away my security blanket. Mm-hmm. So definitely, um, you know, just being able to like sit with people in that place and just encourage them to, um, get help. Mm-hmm. That's, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that Patrice, cause it reminded me it's family week right now. Mm-hmm. And so here at Mar, so I've been sitting in a lot of the sessions and one of them is talking about feeding the invisible monster of addiction. So you think you're, when you're enabling, you think you're, you're helping, but you might be feeding the invisible monster. And I was just thinking about that. Like when you, whether it's with oneself or for somebody else, when you're arguing with that shame, you might be like saying like, oh, but look at all you have accomplished. Mm-hmm. And you, it, you might think that you're helping, but really you're, fueling the fire you know of mm-hmm. like now now shame will have another set of things to argue against you know rather than yeah because at my core i don't believe that yeah that's what shame is at my core i don't believe that and so now i just feel like an imposter like you're showing me all this other evidence but at my core you know that's just you know i'm an imposter and all the accomplishments and evidence and all those are just it, it's not going to help yeah doesn't matter yeah not, not in that moment and addiction and shame love to work you know together and it's like a it's like a, a nautilus they just wind down with each other and, and pull it all away from the truth mm-hmm. you know of the the miraculous being that we actually are Yes, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, that's good. <laughs> yeah, were you were you gonna say something? I, I think you you mentioned uh, Family Week, and that just triggered a, a yeah. thought for me. Um, one of my favorite parts of our Family Week um, is uh, a talk we do on powerlessness, mm. um, and and the reason why because um, in that talk. Um, it's about accepting the powerlessness that, you know, I cannot change like another like human being or I'm, you know, powerless over, you know, people, places and things. I'm powerless over my addiction. Right. Which is, which is the first step. Um, and that by accepting that powerlessness is how I'm going to gain the power, mm-hmm. you know, to make the changes that I need to make so that I can be the healthiest you know version of myself. Um and the, as the acronym that the therapist uses when she's talking about powerlessness for pain, and that acronym is like pay attention inward now, you know, um, because that's it. We do things to, because we don't want to feel pain. We want to avoid pain. Um, but really, there's pain is it, it may not feel good, but it's actually a good thing because it's your body's way of telling you to pay attention inward now 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. And this whole, the fact that we're talking about Family Week now got me thinking that this must be a huge issue too for family members um, of people that are in active addiction or maybe in, in recovery, but there's still the wreckage of the past. And like shame is something they've got to deal with too of like, because I know that from sitting in on Family Week, I know that's a big part of the disease, the family disease of addiction is that we don't want to tell our our other family members or our neighbors or whatever about what's really going on. So shame can really spread spread outward, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The disease of addiction touches anybody who comes in contact with it in some way. Yeah. And isolating is its primary mode of yeah. control mm-hmm. and progression. Yeah. Yeah. So the family, and so that's another way that I guess shame can play tricks on, well, I'm on, on people, on family members too, that, well, I'm helping them by protecting their reputation or by yeah. not, you know, not letting, you know, calling the boss to call in sick for them, I'm yeah. protecting them, but really it's protecting the disease, not the, mm-hmm. the person. And I'm glad you said that, too, because it just really dawned on me, too, that I think that um, that can also trigger, like, shame in a family member. Like, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't help my loved one, that I can't fix them, I can't get them to stop? And so then now I'm carrying, like, my shame, you know, as the spouse of someone with, you know, addiction or the mom of, or the the sister of, or the dad of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's e- an easy thing to start doing as a therapist, particularly when you're starting. Like, if I could just say this right, then they could, they could get, it would click and they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. contagious, right? Because mm-hmm. then the therapist thing, I'm a horrible therapist. Yeah. I'm not good at this, right? Yeah. It's like, that's. It wants to those... destabilize everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both thank you so, so much. much. This yes. was this was a pleasure and to hear hear your wisdom. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.